This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Now with at least one secret robot host, can you guess which of us it is? Today's topic is androids and other robot buddies in film. Do they want to be us, love us, kill us, or just be left in peace? Among other things, we all made a point of watching the new film, Megan, M3GAN, and the old Spielberg film, AI, Artificial Intelligence. My name is Mark Lynchmeyer, and I just want a realistic robot sex slave. Is that so wrong? Wow. My name's Al Baker, constantly failing the Turing test. My name is Sarah Lynn Bruck, and man, I wish I'd treated Teddy Ruxpin better. My name is Lawrence Ware, coming from Oklahoma, and I recently watched Blade Runner, and I had nothing deeper to say. Well, this was a sprawling, yeah, this was supposed to just be Pinocchio Part 2, that you guys said, oh, we want to watch AI for the Pinocchio episode. And I started watching that, like, this is not that relevant. I mean, they, they referenced Pinocchio. They clearly didn't read the whole unabridged story. They clearly, no. <laughs> otherwise the little <laughs> robot child would not be so inspired to go on his quest if they had read, oh, I'm going to be a guard dog <laughs> at some point. I'm going to be hung. Um, maybe not. Maybe none of this is applicable. But yes, this expanded. Then watching Megan in the theater, more than a Chucky. It actually raised some cool issues. So starting with those two points, it was sort of like, well, what else can we bring in? What else uh, have we already experienced? Of course, androids have been in many, many things. Who wants to start us off? Well, I mean, just as kind of a jumping off point from the Pinocchio discussion and how Pinocchio was in part about parenting, I definitely saw references to parenting in both Megan and AI. And what some of those issues are, you know, the things that we bring into, you know, of course, right now we talk about how kids are sort of inundated with tech and gadgets and parenting. And in some ways is sort of we're loading off our our duties onto an iPad or in this case, a very lifelike, creepy robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not quite an Android in that case. Not actually built to fool you, but but emotionally. As far as androids are concerned, of course, I went to Blade Runner. I then went to the very beautiful, and I don't know if it's good or not, Blade Runner sequel. You know, Denis Villeneuve is a really good director. And so it's amazing, the direction, all kinds of stuff. But is it good? I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. And then I went to Alien Part 1 and then Aliens. And that has an interesting kind of duality when it comes to androids, because Alien Part 1, like Alien, the android ends up being like bad. And then in Aliens, the android ends up being good. But yet Ripley is very suspicious of androids. And so it begins to kind of bring in all kinds of suspicions of technology and things like that. Uh, of course, watched AI. <sighs> is Megan an android? I mean, we can talk about that. Like, I don't know if, if Megan really fits the like AI kind of yearning to be real all the kind of like Megan is like a doll that kills people. I mean, so I'm, I'm not sure if it kind of fits that kind of like stereotype that we have about these Android films, but it's a very large and sprawling kind of idea. There's another movie that I watched and I cannot remember the name of it now. It, it's based on a book, but that's also kind of about Androids in a kind of broad way. I also watched <laughs> this movie on Shudder about a Santa Claus that's like mechanical, but starts killing people. It's, <laughs> it's really strange. It, it's, it's a good movie, but it's not. I, I did a deep dive on this. I looked at everything possible. It and is I was, not hard to find material on it's this. It's not. It is not you know, hard you at could all. Just, that rabbit hole it. is deep. So I revisited a lot of the same stuff that you guys have been talking about. AI Blade Runner. I watched Bicentennial Man as well. And 
a whole bunch of Star Trek episodes which have tangentially related themes, which was nice to have an excuse to revisit. I think it's interesting, though, that, yeah, Megan didn't seem to hit on the theme anywhere nearly as much as I thought maybe we can talk about. Because I know from the last time we talked about horror movies that Lawrence and Mark, I don't know if you are, like both big fans of the killer doll genre of the Chucky movies. Is Megan like the beginning of a new lease of life for those kind of, for just like killer robot? Maybe the question is like, what commonality do the killer robot movies have with the killer doll movies? Is that Has that always been a thing? Is Megan doing something new and bringing those together? For me, I think it's doing something new in that it's like really updating it. So like the Chucky stuff comes out of the 80s. The recent TV show is kind of good, but also kind of terrible. Let's put that one to the side. It also brings in this question about parenting and the anxieties around parenting. So, for example, the very beginning of the film, Megan, these two couples, they're like bickering in the car. And I found that to be one of the most kind of affecting scenes of the entire film. It's like very true to life. It's just two people who are bickering about something. And all the while, the kid is in the back. I think she had like a tablet or something like that. And it kind of sets up that there's like this problematic relationship with kids and tablets and technology and parents shifting parental responsibilities onto technology. And that is something like if you're a parent, you're really dealing with that right now. Like you're really trying to figure out how much FaceTime should, should my kid have? Mm-hmm. Is my kid watching the tablet too much? And so to like bring in this kind of element of there's this robot thing that can kind of take the place of the tablet. It simultaneously kind of makes sense while it's also silly, but it brings in all kinds of really interesting questions about what are our responsibilities to children and to technology? Are we like being bad parents by allowing our kids to watch so much technology? Also, by the way, the film that I was talking about was a film called Never Let Me Go with Carrie oh, Mulligan. Yes, yes, And that yes, one is yes. a really, really good. It's a really good film. And it kind of deals with this in a little bit of a different way. I'm also going to find this Shutter film. So people who are listening can watch it, even though it's bonkers, but it's really good at the same time. Yeah, that book is really good, too. I was thinking about some of those same things, Lawrence, with with Megan and then also with After Yang. I don't know if any of you guys caught that one. Oh, yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Because I'm a parent. I'm also a parent of an only child. And both of those films had single children in it. And the robots were brought in as sort of these siblings of sorts to help them adjust to their, at least in Megan, to adjust to her new environment, her new situation, and to help her feel less alone. But I do think, you know, so many of the killer doll narratives are those dolls that become kind of possessed by some sort of outside force. Whereas, like a, uh, yeah, which is not so relevant to... Which yeah. is not relevant to Megan because she is man-made, just like any of the other AIs. Those are man-made creations, and we sort of do this to ourselves, which I think is also kind of another lovely little wrinkle in these stories. And I'm also going to say real fast that the movie that I saw, and I'm telling you, it sounds buckwild crazy, but it is shockingly a good movie called Christmas Bloody Christmas. Mm. It's about, I'm I'm sorry, just listen to me, (laughs) hear me out. It's about a mechanical Santa that goes crazy and starts killing people. I'm trying to tell you, it is gnarly. It is good as hell. I'm trying to tell you, trust me on this. Is there anything in that that's related that actually expresses the fear of technology in particular, not just because it has no soul? Ah, it could do anything. You know, that's the sort of killer robots from outer space motif. But what I liked about Megan is that it actually played on the whole fear that 
there was a partially examined life episode that we talked about this with Nick Bostrom of if AI is not given the proper first principles, then it's going to use creative measures to pursue what it takes to be its program. And so if you tell your AI, how do you maximize paperclip production? Like just give it an engineering problem. It might say, well, turn everything in the universe into paperclips. And so we might have an AI catastrophe in that way. And so we had in Megan, like your job is to protect this child and then implausibly, but it's a horror movie. So what do you want? There happens to be like a really sadistic kid who wants to put the hurt on. And so, you know, this is what brings out her, you know, independent out of the box thinking in solving problems that I will murder things. And then the jump from that to ditching her original programming, that was maybe where it fell apart. But at some of these, it seems like there has to be some complexity. Maybe you give it an unsolvable problem and instead of, you know, like the Star Trek computer that says, oh, illogical, illogical, and it blows up. It gains independence and says, screw all you and your programming. I'm out for me now, which is exactly what happens in that film. I mean, to be honest, it reminds me of Terminator 2, if you think, well, Terminator and Terminator mm-hmm. 2, in that I think it's Skynet. I think the same name is Skynet. Like, so Skynet mm-hmm. becomes like sentient or I forgot what it said, what the word was, like realizes its place in the world, I guess I should say. And then it like turns on the humans. That is at its core exactly what we're talking about. Now, I do agree with you that Megan kind of goes a little bit haywire. Like when Megan starts dancing and then, you know, Megan is killing everybody in the building. I mean, that's a little over the top. But when Megan was in council, like there are real kids who are like that. Like I used to know kids who are like that. I'm sure that they're still out there. It makes sense for Megan to do that kind of stuff. So I thought that Megan followed a significant thread that made sense until they decided to like go full horror movie and then like kind of go off the rails. And I think they intentionally knew that they were going haywire in Megan and they just kind of turned up. But obviously they were successful because they're going to they're gonna clearly make another one because that movie was incredibly successful in the box office. And also the idea of pairing, you're paired with your robot, you know, just like you pair with your phone or something, you know, and you see the pairing actually even in AI, right? You do, you do. And so that bond, it sort of brings up that question of like, yes, these are all man-made creations. This is something that we have done to ourselves but we couldn't foresee what that would actually mean. We thought it would be pretty harmless, you know, like, sure, you're pairing just like you would pair to a parent or something, right? Or you pair with your child, something that doesn't have a heart or doesn't have a soul and pairing with that. What are the consequences of that? Something that the inventor of this never, she could never see what was going to happen with that. We've, just in talking about all these different movies, we, I think we've already come across like a few really interesting, distinct themes that these stories kind of pursue in trying to tease out different anxieties, I guess, about AI. Like one of them is clearly our fault. We have not anticipated the kinds of behaviors that might result from the instructions that we're giving robots or artificial intelligences. Another one is just seems like a straightforward morality tale, like the Skynet thing, where it seems like the lesson of that story is it's the same with the, the backstories of the Matrix, too. If you create anything sufficiently powerful, it is eventually going to become impossible for you to control. I think it's even back to, like, then, war games. I'm sure there's even older versions. Like, yeah. the most efficient way to kill all the humans, you know. Or, yeah, it's absolutely. Just like the, What's up the, with that yeah. accent, Mark? What was that all about? <laughs> That's the robot 
country? That goes as far back as the E.M. Forrester short story, The Machine Stops. That was, did anybody read that? That's what we have Sarah here for. Good job, Sarah, going to E.M. Forrester. Yes, sir. But it's fascinating. I think about that story all the time, and I think I read it as an undergraduate. But it is, it has the same theme of these machines are controlling our lives. We're enjoying our lives because of these machines. Eventually, we stop enjoying our lives because of these machines. And now we don't have, we can't stop it. We don't have the intelligence anymore to be able to, to stop what we've created. Thank you, Sarah, for letting me realize how unintelligent I am because I have no <laughs> idea what the hell you're talking about, but I oh. deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, for that. well, you're welcome, Lawrence. Anytime. I'm, I'm going to read that now. Thank you. I'm going to find that. I'm going That's to read great. I love it. While we're just talking literature for a second, Brian Hurt, the former one of the hosts of this, had recommended a particular Zelazny story, For a Breath I Tarry. Anybody look at that? No. I will no, link, I I link folks to it. I obviously don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's in a post-human future. All the humans are dead, and there are still computers running things. And one of them gets very curious from these archaeological artifacts of what it is to be a person. And sort of gradually, as it goes through, you know, you can collect all the knowledge and still you don't get aesthetic reaction, but eventually being embodied, they find some genetic material and they push one of the minds into this. And originally he comes back out after five minutes and just like, oh, that didn't work. That's terrible. Don't put me in there. That there's something about being embodied. That is the human perspective. And you won't have aesthetic appreciation. You could have all the data you want. You could have everything, you know. So in that, it's having the bodies actually that's what the soul amounts to. You could have something that looks like a body, but unless you have the actual squishiness. Yeah. So I guess there's always a metaphysical theory that's in these things. At least if we care about like, is the thing really conscious? You know, I think the good ones among these actually explore like, is it not just autonomous, but is it like ex machina or something, you know, was deeply curious about, is it actually self-aware and what would cause that? And so in AI that it was trying to say, well, that's why we gave it the ability to love, because if it had the ability to love, it would truly be self-conscious in the way that Jude Law and all the other androids in that film are not, which it's an insoluble philosophical problem. So, you know, it's going to be sort of a cheat or a guess or a, let's just pick an answer and see where it goes plot wise in any given work of fiction. It is a super interesting theme in all, all of those things where if you start with the question of like, what is the sine qua non that's going to turn this robot into a genuine and presumably not especially dangerous person, the story's always managed to find a way to make that the single worst thing that you could possibly give a robot <laughs> to try and make it not a threat. Contemporarily, it kind of makes sense why you would kind of want to tell a story about that because we're getting close to that, honestly. Like we're getting close to AI having a significant impact on our lives and things like mm -hmm. that. But I wonder what, what encouraged Jim Cameron in the 80s to kind of start playing with this or really Scott in the 70s to start playing with this. Like, how is it that these people, Ian Forrester, as she just kind of pointed out, what is it that they were able to kind of way back then when they had no idea where we were going to go with technology to kind of start playing with these ideas about what AI would be like, uh, you know, like Blade Runner, the first one is in the 80s, I believe, 82, 82, yeah, 82. Like that's way before where we are now. And so how is it that these people long time ago are asking these kinds of questions where we're now right up against answering those questions? Like, like we're really close to having genuine AI now, if you pay attention to the literature and what's happening out there. So oh is the answer that essentially the story and the themes of the story is the Frankenstein narrative or Pygmalion or any number of Gollum sort of stories. It's an old fairy tale trope. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's a really interesting way of telling that particular story because not only does it have the Frankenstein pathos of like it being something that humans have created and can no longer control, but it's also like unknowable in a kind of quasi cosmic horror kind of way, which is what makes a lot of the scary AIs so kind of affecting. You know, they have something very recognizable in the kind of cold hard logic that they follow, but there's obviously something very alien about them as well, or even if they have those human qualities like love or whatever else. One of the common themes is always that you have to make these robots uncanny. Like, clearly you do, because you have to differentiate them from people. That's interesting as well, how like the focus on every robot who wants, just getting back to the theme of robots who want to be human, every robot who wants to be human seems to like fetishize one aspect of the human experience. And if you think about like data and emotions in Star Trek, for instance, and every time data pushes on that button and tries to exhibit emotions or experience emotions, it just looks incredibly creepy and it comes across as incredibly creepy. And that seems like it has something to do with just the core concepts of the uncanny. Like you have something that is very nearly but not quite human. And the more it focuses in on one element of the human experience, the less human like it seems to become. I read this book or part of this book on uh, sociopaths and the way that sociopaths can pass in society without us knowing who they are is just that they fake all real emotions. And you just think, well, there's probably a lot more sociopaths walking around our society than we know who'd never harm a fly or hurt another person. But I was thinking about that while watching Ex Machina, this robot who can fool you into thinking that she has feelings, that she can feel love, that she has a sexuality, that she has, that she makes judgments on other people when in turn, she just wants to get the heck out of there. (laughs) But so much so that Caleb, the kid in that movie ends up questioning his own humanity because there's something that has been man-made once again, who is acting as has fooled him and how, how convincing she is as a human. And along those lines, I did a deep dive into this stuff and started looking at all kinds of random. So, so I also watched like the Stepford wives um, Mm -hmm. where the men are, it depends on which one you're watching, but the men are replacing their wives with these like robotic humanoid things. And then on a lark, I started watching the invasion of the body snatchers, the one from the seventies with Donald Sutherland. It, this is not about robots, but it's about like something creeping into humanity, taking over humanity's bodies and all the kind of stuff. And so it made me think of the idea of like what would happen if robots kind of creeping in. And it's just all the different takes that you can have on this kind of stuff. You can go serious with it. You can go kind of tongue-in-cheek with it. You can go Mm -hmm. action movie with Terminator. I'm just fascinated about why this is an idea that can kind of permeate in the same way that we talked about last time with Pinocchio. Like This is just an idea that seems to kind of permeate the culture. It continues to be there. Mark, you asked a question, which I am still chewing on. I don't have an answer for it, but I keep thinking about it. You asked, what's our responsibility toward robots? Like, what is our responsibility? And I just thought, oh my God, that we always come back with, oh, what can they do for us? How can they make our lives easier? You know, Mm -hmm. how can they make me less of a parent? How can I make them do things that I don't want to do? Like, you know, vacuum my floor and write my term papers. (laughs) But what our responsibility is, is something that I kept thinking about, especially I watched Blade Runner was the last movie that I watched. And I kept thinking about that question. I wondered if anybody else had done any thinking about it. I mean, watching AI definitely made me think of that question. Mm -hmm. Like, like what's our responsibility to these things? And the thing that I walked away with 
is that the more sentient it is, the higher your responsibility to it. Mm-hmm. And the less sentient it is, the lower your responsibility to it. And that's just kind of my impression. Like, so for Megan, no responsibility whatsoever. Get the hell out of here. Right. But that character in AI, it really kind of affected me, kind of pulled on my heartstrings a little bit. So no responsibility, even without the murdering. You're saying the nature of the creature is such that even if she yeah, she could really. be the, you know, this super empathetic and get to the point of, you know, I actually don't have to do what you tell me anymore. I'm curious about the world. I'm self-aware. Just the independence thing that seems to happen in all these things. That even that, because I can understand, like, if that thing then starts murdering things, then you're like, well, screw this. But, like, that's about anybody, pretty much. That unless you are a very... Well, not any, not any. Unless you are... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, unless you're very sympathetic toward determinism about, well, I know the person flipped out and killed a bunch of people, but let's look at their background and let's be humane and contain them. But plenty of people, anybody that does never study philosophy is probably just like, screw that. (laughs) Once you violate the rules that bad... You have no rights. You're not even a human being anymore. You're outside the moral community. We kill you. The thing with the robots is that because they are so new, I actually spent a good amount of this week watching all three seasons or, you know, the part that I hadn't already seen of the BBC show Humans, which gets into real detail in exploring the political ramifications that there are sort of synths that are just walking around that are just the slaves of people and they're fine with that. But then there's magic code <laughs> that gets in first just some of them and then just about all of them that now, oh, now I can feel and now, but they are just woken up. And so like immediately, like a whole bunch of people die because like you were driving a plane, but then like, oh, why am I driving a plane? I never assented to driving a plane. So the plane crashes. So all these things, you start out with this newly sentient population that have essentially, even if accidentally murdered a bunch of people. And so of course, politically, the humans, except for a few, very few exceptions, are just like, fuck those guys. Like, let's commit a genocide right now. This is a, a, a factory recall. But, whoa, 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 <laughs> but, but is it but is it a genocide? That's, and, that's and, the and, question. And, they don't consider it so, obviously. But the viewer is obviously supposed to consider it. They put, very, you know, Gemma Chan is the main android. But it's not so, a genocide, though. The really interesting lesson of the classic Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, where they have the trial wherein they try to establish the humanity of data. The kind of moral lesson of Whoopi Goldberg's character is that in many ways, the rightness or wrongness of like the basis on which you exclude robots or things which appear very nearly human-like from the moral community it's morally dangerous to even put yourself in the position of asking whether or not to make that distinction. Guinan says in, in Next Generation is the question for data is not, is data sufficiently human to have civil rights? It's what are the consequences for humanity or civilized species if we start differentiating on those kinds of grounds? So when I was watching Megan, and this is going to kind of tie this back to what Sarah was talking about a little bit. I honestly was thinking of Teddy Russman. Like Megan for me really felt really close to like a newer Teddy, right? When I was younger, I had a Teddy and I was mean as fuck to Teddy, man. Like I threw Teddy's ass around. Don't tell nobody. I like burned him. I was really bad to Teddy. For the record, I'm not a sociopath. I didn't harm small animals. Nothing like that. But I was just a bad kid. And I, I like, I, I like fucking with Teddy. Was that like the particular qualities of his voice and things like did it enrage you? I think I was bad. I don't think there was a reason. I think I was probably a bad kid. Anyway, 
I had no feelings toward Teddy. I didn't care about Teddy. So when it came to Megan, I was like, Megan's like a little doll. Like, what are our responsibilities to this little single doll? Now, Skynet is big. This singular doll, this small doll, this single consciousness that's kind of becoming self-aware and is kind of a little bit of an asshole. I didn't care about Megan. I was perfectly fine with like just like killing Megan. When it comes to other things, I have deeper questions about those things. So I don't know what that says about me. That's why they didn't make it an android. It was supposed to connote that uncanny valley thing, which is exactly the opposite of most of these things are like, let's try to make the most human, you know, animated whatever thing possible, but it just looks freaky. And, you know, you don't sympathize in with it in the way the filmmaker wants you to here. It was just like, no, let's embrace. In fact, it makes it kind of really hard to think that this little girl is so enchanted with her imaginary friend <laughs> in this way because it is so freaky looking. Well, what about if we go in the other direction, like with the Sean Young character in Blade Runner, who doesn't even know that she's a robot. She doesn't know that she's a replicant. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, what is our responsibility to someone like her who could still turn around and kill us all? But we don't know. I mean, I guess she's only alive for four years or something, right? So we just wait it out. But what is our responsibility to a robot that doesn't even know that they're a robot? Isn't, again, the lesson of Blade Runner that you get in trouble as soon as you put yourself in a position of trying to tell the difference or trying to make those kinds of decisions? Well, only certain people can do that. The Blade Runners are the only people mm. who are trained to do that. And even that, I think they question whether or not it was 100% you could still end up killing a person. Some of this is sort of a question of, of xenophobia, that in the Star Trek universe we've already established, a lot of weird creatures have come along. And if you're just like, they're not human, ah, you know, that's something we had to get over like very fast. Um, but to kind of contract it as close as it could be, if you remember in the prestige, they basically use some quantum magic to uh, duplicate Hugh Jackman appears and they're going to kill each other. Only one Hugh Jackman can exist. It seems like it was okay in that circumstance because like two of us should not exist. We're not going to oh, we better reformat our life and figure out who gets to have my wife and who gets to have my... No, it's just, it's okay. <laughs> so th I think this is what happens was, when, when... Was it okay? Well, I mean... It felt pretty gruesome to me. This is... A, <laughs> right, right. So this is, at least feels like what happens when immediately, you know, we've never had any other sentient life before. And if, as in this show that I described, this human show, suddenly all these things just turn on and say, we're alive now! Like... If you could simply put a stop to that, like at least I can understand why you definitely want to. Maybe if, you know, if you can't, then yes, you have to make accords, you have to grow up. So it sort of doesn't matter after a certain point whether they actually have qualia, whether they actually are sentient or not. If they act sentient enough, then like, well, they're just part of the social environment and you could have the same doubts about other human beings. So fine, give them rights, give it like basically anything that asks for rights, go ahead and give it rights. <laughs> so that makes me think of after Yang, when they find out, it's like they learn about that he has a history. They learn of that he has memories and they sort of discover the Colin Farrell character discovers along the way that he needs to kind of honor that. He sort of discovers the robot's humanity as the movie progressed. And his responsibility was to honor those memories in the way that they could in that particular world. But I don't know, I find all of that stuff so interesting because initially the reason why we create 
these robots is mm. to help make our lives easier, right? They're there to right. serve humanity. They're there yeah. to serve us, right. right? In every way, it could be to be as a friend to your child, or it could be as a sex object, or it could be as an enslaved robot. You know, I mean, it just sort of goes all across the gamut. But I think because we're all in the middle of AI technology ramping up right now, especially in my classroom at my college, we just got back, you know, for spring semester. And one of the first things that we discussed in our department meeting was about those chatbots. Yeah, same, you know? same. We oh, I'm sure. Too. We did Yeah, too. I'm sure, yeah. Lawrence. Yeah. What the hell are we going to do? We have no idea. We have absolutely no clue what we're going to do. <laughs> we're not afraid at this point. We are afraid of them fooling us and, you know, cheating on all your tests and things, but your essay tests, but we're not afraid of that. It actually being sentient and us having to give it rights. Like we're very comfortable enslaving the things. And I think there would be something despite all the films. I think it's just, it's the cheapest possible sci-fi way to have a perfect Android to have, Ooh, it's sci-fi because it's an actor moving a little funny, <laughs> you know, and maybe wearing some contact lenses that make them look yeah. a little funky. Well, <laughs> you just pick. It's like a fantasy thing based on uh, psychics. Like, ooh, I read your mind. Like, you spent no money on that special effect. It's only when they peel back their heads and you see, you know, <laughs> that they have to create the mask to show the insides. There's a film called Robot and Frank that has robots providing elder care mm. and they don't look like humans. Oh. And I don't mm. think the real people building them would want them to look like humans in general, right? For exactly this reason, that we want to feel like these are not our slaves. It's not like we all just want slaves and we're sad that slavery times have passed and now we have robot slaves. No, it's that we want tools. So we don't want them looking back at us with puppy dog eyes unless it's a robot puppy dog. Well, yeah, the results of that design decisions like this incredibly creepy Japanese nurse robot, which is, has a teddy bear's head and an incredibly <laughs> hench-like wrestler body so that it can lift up people. It's a hellscape out there. To be honest... I'm not so sure we're not that far away from this. Two years, three years ago, I would have never in my life had thought that we would have gotten to a point to where like AI are writing like philosophy papers. Like we had a, a meeting, long meeting, trying to figure out what are we going to do with the reality that students are able to get their papers written for them by AI. And so since we're here now and they're talking about upgrading that technology to where now you won't be able to kind of find it on software where you can kind of figure out who's cheating or whatnot. I honestly don't know where we're going. Like, what is the, the next 10 years from now? Like, what does that look like? I have no idea. So it's not as recent as like they thought back in the Twilight Zone days or as recent as they thought in Terminator days. But it seems like we're getting there. And I'm kind of concerned about it. Since we're on that topic of chat GPT, the thing I'm worried about, which is interestingly related to the, the whole question of sentient AI and so on, is that while chat GPT can write a philosophy paper, it can't do philosophy. So what we've kind of done is created a really, really efficient piece of technology, which can do a really good job of acting like it can do a particular kind of work, like complicated academic work of various kinds, but it can't actually do that work. So it's simultaneously giving people a way to get away without doing work for themselves, without providing a full substitute of a super intelligent entity that can actually do that kind of work as well as a, as a person. Kind of what I'm worried about with this generation of AI isn't that it's going to get sentient and isn't that it's going to do stuff better than we can. 
is that it's going to make it too easy for people to not do the stuff that they would previously have had to do without providing a kind of good technological substitute for the actual work. And so in other words, what you're saying is that we are going, well, we aren't, but people are going to get dumber because they're not having to actually do the work. You know, that's one of the things that I've oftentimes said that whenever you cheat, even if you get away with it, you're like doing a disservice to yourself because you're supposed to be trying to gain some intellectual tools here. And if you are cheating and you're like sifting by without having to do any of the actual work, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not going to be smarter because of it. So I think you're right. I think you're onto something there, Al, that we're going to. What is that movie where <laughs> like society this is, is just, really, really dumb? I forgot what the name is. This is reminding me of uh, Wally. And that's what like just what vision of, I believe of how robots impact people. Idiocracy, though. Is, yeah, I think that's, that's, oh, the name yeah. Movie. that's the name of the movie. Right. And, and to be honest, there's something to that. I mean, because you're right that they're not actually doing philosophy. But to be honest. The really people I expect to do philosophy are like professors and stuff like that. I don't expect kids to like genuinely do philosophy. Like not yet. You're trying to learn about it. And so they should know how to write though. That's kind of the skill that we think they ought to develop. And we're going to have a problem. I mean, we already have a problem where not enough people, this is becoming incredibly preachy now, but we already have a problem where not enough people know how to string sentences together. And now it's chat GPT means that that is literally going to go the way of mental arithmetic after pocket calculators, which I don't care as much about because I'm not a mathematician. So wait a minute, wait a minute. I so, 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 there's a problem with me counting on my fingers because I still do it. <laughs> is, is, there, is there a problem there? Chat bots aren't going anywhere. You know, we still have tools. We have tools like Grammarly out there that have helped us for years now. I think the only way that you can go is really just by kind of embracing this new technology and figuring out how we can use it without losing those skills that students don't necessarily know. You know, when you're 18 years old, you're not ready to embrace the fact that writing is thinking. You know, they don't quite get that just yet. You get that after the fact. So using those tools, figuring out a way to use those tools in the classroom is probably the way to go. But I don't know how we're going to do it yet. And I teach a lot of online classes and I am quite frankly, very concerned. So I'm trying to figure out how to loop this back. (laughs) We're expressing some of the current fears, you know, exactly the kind of things that these media. So originally, Lawrence, you brought up the whole taking care of your kids thing. And if robots take over all the crappy jobs, great. And I know from experience that writing copy is among the crappy jobs. You would think that sitting at it, you know, there's white collar stuff. I would not count, but by all means, even if that means not that you would want your people learning only from artificial things, but like learning from a podcast is also not learning from an actual person talking to you right then. And that's essentially what AIs are doing. Or it's just like searching the web. You know, it's it's not that different than I have to write a little paper on something. I'll do a bunch of web searching. I'll throw what I find in a document. I'll reword it and organize it a little bit. So it's just the AI is taking over those last couple steps, <laughs> you know, that, that true, the things that would make true. you not able to search on a given sentence and say, I see you completely stole this off the web. But like getting information off the web is getting information. What you're supposed to do, whether you're getting it from your textbook or somewhere else, it's just a matter of, you know, web literacy and blah, blah, blah. But the thing that you had started with is the emotional work. Would we be somehow losing our humanity by taking care of kids? can be pretty tedious and we already have you know a real issue of rich people who just hire a nanny and like well what does that do to your kid then the kid thinks that the nanny is their 
parent and the nanny has to go away after a while. Maybe you switch nannies every, it is a problem that we already have right now without any machines being involved. And also that idea of what is your responsibility as a parent of have a child who is doesn't have any siblings, right? Sometimes I think like, especially in the after Yang or something, or even in Megan, their heart was in the right place to a certain extent, you know, to have that companionship. And after Yang, the older brother robot was there to help the child understand her background because she was an adopted child, right? So be able to provide some of that information that she probably wanted to know about herself or didn't even know that she needed to know about herself that her parents couldn't give her. I mean, some of this stuff starts out in just a fine ethical space (laughs) and doesn't always end up there. Yeah. Did you find that in Megan where it's like the robot is helping her deal with her grief and everybody, all the people who are watching it are crying over this. Like I thought that was a very well-written scene that if it didn't have the scenes like that, then I would just be like, okay, it's Chucky five or whatever. (laughs) But that actually grounded it and made me like the movie and potentially want to see, you know, they're going to just lose all that. If there's a sequel, it's there's, they're not, they might not, they (laughs) might not. I will say though, going back to Megan, it kind of didn't make sense to me that she would choose humans over Megan when she has spent so much time defending Megan, loving Megan, saying Megan this, Megan that, all kind of stuff. That's just a personal criticism that I film. Like, why would she end up choosing this woman who was really distant to her and not that kind, really, when she spent so much time with Megan? I, I felt kind of cheap. I ain't love it. Yeah. I mean, like, going back to that scene in the playroom, the observational playroom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, I can speak from personal experience. Sometimes it's easier to spill your feelings as a child to your stuffed Snoopy doll or your best friend than it is to your mom or your dad, you know, or it can take a little bit for you to be able to get those conversations out of your child. You know, as a parent, it can be hard work sometimes to get those conversations. Sometimes it's easier than others, but sometimes it can be hard to get, you know, I'm having a hard time, you know, from your kid. Whereas it's easier for that child to be able to talk to a peer or their nanny or their teacher or even just their stuff Snoopy. Well, first of all, stuff Snoopy is something that you clearly had as a kid because you, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. you keep referring to it. So you guilty. had a stuff Snoopy. Guilty. You had a stuff Snoopy. But two, that even furthers my question. Why does she choose the humans over the the scientific? Because doll? the doll is a murderer. Like because the child is old enough that even though it's sort of broached earlier, like I would have completely sided with that doll. I'm like, yes, kill them, kill them all. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, there, but besides which, there there are a couple scenes, or at least one scene that sets up her actually having a relationship with her aunt. So like that sort of gives some grounding for what scene when she like when she was crazy and mean as hell to her aunt. Is that the scene you're talking about? No, no, no. It's later. It's another grief thing. I realize that the worst ever thing has happened to you. They actually have a chat. So they at least once spell that out. And, you know, I'm going to work much harder and I've been a bad aunt and I'll be a better aunt. And, you know, yes, that could just be like a drug addict assuring you that they're going (laughs) to get back on the straight and narrow. No, you're a workaholic. You're not going to be a good aunt. Just give it up. Still, you can see why the kid could fall for that. And I think it's just one of these things where 
the kid is not evil and is not going to be a servant of evil. It's so it's that, all right, well, maybe you murdered somebody, but it's not really confirmed. You know, it's not like the little girl's on board with her doll murdering anybody. It's just like she's ambivalent about it. And so when you're actually seeing your doll with its head, I don't want to give away the climactic scene, but no, anyway. Don't give it away. But I, I will say yeah. that movie, two thirds of the movie was really, really good. The last third of that movie was bonkers. And it's fine. I like bonkers horror movies, but I cannot believe that Mark is sitting here trying to tell me that the bonkersness that I saw was not as bonkers as I know it's bonkers, but that's okay, Mark, because it wasn't that bonkers. You would have been so annoyed if the little girl had just like, I'm a devotee of the doll now. I would have loved it. I would have <laughs> loved it. That would have been a great twist. That would have been a great sequel. Shut up. A great sequel. Yeah. Maybe it's the control group where... Where <laughs> while this was going on, there's M4 GAN is uh, she's she's just has a bunch of uh, human slaves now that are going around helping her with her. Speaking reign of, of which, I do wonder what the name of the second movie is going to be because this one already has three in it. So what, what's the second? What's going to be called two? I don't know. M3 A2. <laughs> that is it already named because they already, I think they already. It's already a go. I know. No, they're going to make another one. This movie made so much money. They're going to make another one. And I will say that the production design and like the costuming was top notch. It was a really, really well thought out movie as far as the production design, the way that, that Megan looks. I promise you, you're going to see in this upcoming October people dressing like Megan. I promise oh, you, yeah. you will. It's such an iconic look. It's coming January 2025 and it's called Megan 2.0. Of course. That's lazy. I'm not on board with that. They better change that name. <laughs> Any other sort of as a last go round things that you didn't get to talk about? Particular recommendation. Al, did you say you sat through Bicentennial Man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not that bad of a movie. No, it's great. It doesn't try and be as worthy as AI, so it doesn't ring quite as hollow. Sometimes it hasn't aged. Maybe I don't know if AI has aged poorly or if it was always just yeah. kind of weird, but Bicentennial Man's a fine watch. But AI is well worth revisiting because it really captures very neatly just what like 1990s AI paranoia was kind of all about. And Haley Joel Osment is it the like I mean Haley Joel Osment was a cute kid. He hasn't grown up to be a cute adult, but he was a cute ass kid though. We haven't mentioned that they insert the Teddy Ruxpin character actually into that film just to show the contrast between yeah. Real yeah. AI, which the boy is <laughs> supposed to be, and fake AI, but yet you still really like, this is something we had not brought up. I got in a conversation in prepping for this about how problematic Star Wars is about this whole thing, because they mm. don't really, except for, you know, some of the later stuff, like a little bit in the solo film where the robots are rebelling or in Andor, there's a more sort of sensitive treatment for, for the most part, like their characters, you're supposed to, but they even make some comments like, oh, it's a good thing droids can't think. Like, that's Obi-Wan talking in episode two or something that it's like they want to make absolutely clear it is okay for us to just shoot all these battle droids to hell because they are not sentient and it's okay if R2-D2 blows up a few times. Don't worry, we'll put them back together. <laughs> it's okay if we blank out C-3PO's memory. It's like Pinocchio, the original story that's aimed at kids not caring about what is Pinocchio supposed to know or not know. It's just like not taking something philosophically seriously that, of course, given that Star Wars is a geek property, people eventually take seriously. 
But like, Mm -hmm, it seems, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the things that makes it space opera or whatever and not actual sci-fi is because they just do not really give a shit if C-3PO has qualia or not or what our duties towards C-3PO are. It seems okay to just break him up and (laughs) it's fine. It's, It's only because the audience cares about him as a character why we want him rebuilt, but not because he has any inherent ethical worth. He's basically just a computer, like a cute sounding computer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the Teddy Ruxpin. Sarah Lynn, any, anything? You know, I was just talking about Blade Runner last night with some friends and how much of Blade Runner got 2019 wrong. and Or is it 2017 <laughs> or 2019? Mm-hmm. Anyway, how many newspapers people had, you know, they are reading, still reading newspapers and using newspapers as makeshift <laughs> umbrellas in the rain. You know? And I thought, oh, man, little do they know. Very few newspapers, very few magazines. Wow. Thank you for that darkness. Lauren. I'm sorry. I'm, that's what I'm here for, to bring everybody down. <laughs> Lawrence, any final thoughts? We need more black robots. I think that's a great thing to take yeah. up in the uh, in the after talk to, to talk for a second about Afrofuturism. Oh, I'm, I'm in love with that. That's Thanks good. for listening, folks. Thanks to you three. Thanks, guys. Thank bye. 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 Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.